This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Tom Switzer and welcome to Between the Lines. It's great to have your company. Today on our Anzac Day program, let's travel back to a time when Prime Ministers commanded that quality of leadership that the Romans called gravitas. <laughs> Two past Prime Ministers, one from each side of the political tracks, Ben Chifley in power from 45 to 49, and our longest serving Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, who was in power for more than 18 years. Stay with us. Well, when Prime Ministers leave politics, or when politics leaves them more appropriately, they don't usually just fade into the sunset, do they? They invariably still speak out about all and sundry. What did Gareth Evans call the condition? Relevance deprivation syndrome. Well, one exception was Robert G. Menzies. After he retired as Prime Minister in 1966, at a time of his choosing, after 16 years in the job, he rarely spoke out. Sure, he wrote a couple of memoirs, but after nearly a year as a private citizen, he was keen to stay below the cut and thrust of politics, writing to his beloved daughter, Heather, quote, I must confess that I have not missed politics since I retired. Even the smell of the battle hardly reaches my nostrils. That's Robert Menzies in a private letter to his daughter in late 66, and that letter featured in some correspondence that Heather Henderson published in 2011. Well, now comes a new Menzies biography that reveals personal insights from our longest-serving Prime Minister after he left office. The book is called Robert Menzies, The Art of Politics, and the author is Troy Bramston. He's a senior writer and columnist with the Australian newspaper and a former speechwriter to Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Troy, welcome to the show. Hello, Tom. Now, there have been many books about Robert Menzies, you know, his agenda, his life, his legacy. I think of Alan Martin's two-volume biography in the 1990s, John Howard's book on the Menzies era in 2014. Howard did a documentary on that too for the ABC. How does your book shed new light on our longest-serving Prime Minister? Well, he is our longest-serving Prime Minister, but it's been more than 20 years since there's been a full-life biography written of him. It's remarkable, really, to think that he would go so long without this kind of attention in terms of the book world. Um, but look, I found it to be a compelling Australian story of a guy born in 1894 in a country town, the last Prime Minister born in the 19th century, who rises all the way to the top job in Australian politics. And what I tried to do is go back and look at him always judging him in the context of the times that he lived, but providing a contemporary lens over it. And I would not have done the book if I could not find significant new archival material. Um, and so I, I went uh, through his papers at the National Library, you know, more than 600 boxes there. The family gave me new letters and articles and things like that that he'd written. Um, and I uncovered a series of interviews that he'd given for a planned biography, which was never written. So I'm actually surprised that there are so many historians and biographers who have not gone back to this rich archival material, which does provide, I think, a new perspective on Menzies uh, for a contemporary audience. Now, he did have an authorised biography by the name of Francis McNichol. Tell us that story. Yeah, look, it's a it's a tragic story, really, because he had he had commissioned Francis McNichol in the late 1960s to write his official biography. She had been a, a journalist uh, for The Economist magazine. She was well-connected in political circles. Uh, her husband was a vice-admiral. And uh, I think the task 
task simply overwhelmed her. Um, but what she did do was conduct a series of interviews with Menzies in 1972 and 1973, in the twilight of his life, where he was extremely revealing about all aspects of his life, his early life, uh, his political contemporaries, policy issues, lessons he'd learned from politics. And she did a lot of research. She interviewed other people. Um, uh, but these interviews have been sealed for nearly 50 years. And the family took the exclusive access to the papers off her, opened them to the public. But the problem was, is for so long, many other people who had wanted to write books were not able to because she was designated as the official biographer. Right. And it's been under wraps for 25 years until you got access to them. Yeah, I, th- I think these interviews have largely been forgotten, but the ownership uh, transferred to the Menzies Foundation, and I was able to get access to those with the support of the National Library and also uh, Menzies' family. Now, as I said, Menzies, unlike today's politicians, you know, in, in retirement, he very rarely spoke out, but he did give an interview to Francis McNichol's brother-in-law, David McNichol, the prominent journalist for Packer in the mid-1970s. And then, of course, there was Heather Henderson's book, this is Robert Menzies' daughter, that was in 2011, which revealed her father letters, and that revealed his personal insights about his thoughts on many issues, especially his successes. Well, the interviews are very revealing um, because he does talk about his early life and his entry into politics and provides a whole range of commentary on political personalities at home and abroad. One of the most significant stories I found, Tom, which had not been really appreciated by other biographers, is is the decision that his two brothers made to enlist in the First World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and Menzies decided to stay home. He was a student at the time. It was a family decision. Um, his sister had eloped as well with a soldier. And this um, plunged the family essentially in, into a emotional turmoil. But he was branded a coward for the rest of his life for not serving. So in these interviews, Menzies was very revealing uh, in a personal way, saying that the motivation for him to go into politics, the galvanising force, was uh, to do service in another way. And you make it very clear that he had a, Menzies had a very good relationship with his political rivals, most notably John Curtin, Ben Shifley and Arthur Corwell. Yeah, look, it's quite, it, it is quite extraordinary. Um, this is a part of our, our politics that is, that is long gone. I think mm. Menzies was essentially an honourable and decent person uh, who believed in the dignity of, of public life and public service, and he had genuine friendships across the political divide, and they are very rare. I found this extraordinary letter that he had written to John Curtin a week before he died in 1945. He was sick mm. at the lodge. Mm. Mm. Menzies was opposition leader, and he said, look, uh, take all the time you need to rest, relax, think about going for a holiday and don't worry about politics. You know, Ben Shifley and I, who was his treasurer, are looking after things. So, you know, don't worry. Uh, and it, that's a remarkable thing in, in our politics to have that there and, you know, in the middle of World War Two as well. And yet you probably didn't know that they had this decent relationship at the time. This was all behind the scenes, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, yeah. they fought politics as hard as any contemporary politician does, um, but they had a genuine friendship. And in, in these interviews, Menzies talks about at the end of the day, just simply having a drink or a cup of tea with, with Curtin or Chiff uh, at the end of the day and just talking about politics, but often just not talking about politics. And it was a genuine friendship. And he had a pretty good relationship with Corwell. They were united in their contempt for Gough Whitlam, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> well, but the funny thing is, is they both didn't vote for their parties in 1972. Fascinating. So Corwell, who was leader of the Labor Party from 61 to 67, did not vote for Labor in 72, Gough Whitlam, and Menzies did not vote for McMahon 
in 72. That's right. I mean, and they, they confided it uh, to each other uh, that they just could not stand their political parties at that <laughs> 1972 election. And, and in fact, I've got good evidence to suggest that Menzies did not vote Liberal in 1969 uh, when John Gordon was the wow. Prime Minister or 1974 when Billy Snedden um, was Liberal leader. There's at least three elections where he left the fold, but he certainly came back uh, for Malcolm Fraser's 1975 election. Okay, now based on your research, do you think that Menzies was a conservative, liberal or a centrist? This is a question I get wherever I go, Tom. Look, it's difficult to apply Menzies' belief in politics and politics today in a contemporary context. I argue in the book that he promoted liberalism within a conservative economic social policy framework. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what he did. But he was certainly conservative in his respect for institutions, his fondness for the monarchy, his belief in big power alliances, his love of Westminster parliamentary democracy in the British legal tradition. Um, but he did try to push the envelope on those liberalism questions. And I think we need to think about the context, which is the Liberal parties formed in mm. the middle of the Second World War. There was a question about increasing state power, Labor's plans for nationalisation, extending rationing, you know, and wartime controls after the war. So so the Liberal parties formed in this in this political cauldron where there were very sharp political divides between socialism and essentially liberalism. And he always saw himself a, as a liberal, and that's the way he identified philosophically. But he did it within a conservative framework. Yeah, and historical context, as you say, is important, different eras, but he would have been aghast at, say, John Howard's support for tariff cuts and work choices, correct? Absolutely. Look, I think what we need to remember is, you know, the economy remained firmly shackled to very tightly regulated mm. product, labour and capital markets. Uh, during the Menzies era, there was rarely a budget surplus. The top marginal tax rate was over 60 cents in the dollar. Menzies Australia is a different Australia. Uh, it's not the Australia of today. And what, really one of the key messages of the book, Tom, his policy legacy doesn't give us much guidance for today, but how he practised the art and science of politics does. You're on RN's Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and I'm with Troy Brampson. He's the author of a new biography on Robert Menzies, which was recently launched by the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, who also happens to be the member for Robert Menzies' seat, Kuyong. That's right, yeah. Now, in your book, uh, you highlight Menzies' achievements, you know, financial assistance to non-government schools that struck a blow against sectarianism, significant investment in universities, colleges, uh, the US Alliance, developing Canberra as the national capital. Yet his legacy is disputed. Let's hear Paul Keating in Parliament in 1992. This is the golden age when vast numbers of Australians never got a look in, where migrants were factory fodder, where Aborigines were excluded from the system, where we had these xenophobes running around about Britain and bootstraps and that awful cultural cringe under Menzies which held us back for nearly a generation. That's Prime Minister Paul Keating slamming the Menzies legacy. That was in 1992. Now let's get John Howard's response to Keating's attack. Here's Howard with me a few years ago. Well, I've heard those remarks before. <laughs> As somebody once said he would say that, wouldn't he? Held us back, eh? Well, home ownership in 1949 was 49%. By 1970, it was close to 70%. Mm, mm. The 1950s was the first decade of the 20th century in which ordinary Australians had a share of the good life. Now, if that's holding you back, if that's putting people gently to sleep, well, I'm all for holding people back and putting them gently to sleep. John Howard with me a few years ago on this program. Now, Troy Bramson, who's right about the Menzies legacy, Keating or Howard? 
Well, look, I'm going to disappoint you, Tom, and say that I think they're both right and they're both wrong. Um, look, this is what makes Menzies such a compelling biographical subject is that, you know, he continues to arouse strong emotions. For, for some people, he's the personification of statesmanship in the 20th century. For others, he's a stuffy Edwardian figure out of tune with the emerging Australia in the 1950s and 60s. The truth is that he's more substantial than his critics allow, but he has more faults than his admirers accept. So, yes, he got a lot of things right, but there are a lot of things, you know, that we've left in the the past. And in the book, there are some quite jarring comments from Menzies on things like the white Australia policy on Aboriginal people on mm. apartheid in South Africa, uh, things like that, that, you know, are really out of place in Australia today. Well, one thing that Menzies did get right was the manner of his retirement. He did defy Enoch Powell's doctrine that all political careers end in failure. This is the Sydney Morning Herald following his resignation. In all his long reign, he has never enjoyed greater domination over his party. His government has never seemed more secure. His health and energy are amazingly good for a man of 71. His mind is as sharp as ever. No one can doubt that if he wished, he could remain in power for many years, yet and fight at least one more election with success. And the Herald concluded, his retirement is a model for other politicians, both in Australia and abroad. Yeah, look, it was it was an exemplary departure from the Prime Ministership. He's still the only Prime Minister to leave office under their own steam, you know, in the more than 50 years. Um, but I do think he probably stayed too long. I think it would have been better for him to leave perhaps before the 1963 election. He would have avoided the tragedy in Vietnam. There would have been less questions about his commitment to things that were changing. You know, the Labor Party had already changed its position on the White Australia policy, for example. And it's interesting that when Harold Holt became Prime Minister, the Liberal government moved quite quickly in areas of policy ossification. So they changed the White Australia policy. They broadened the referendum on, on Indigenous Australians. So, so they recognised there was a need to change. Yes, I mean, the Sydney Morning Herald also reflects that kind of thinking when it argued, quote, the Menzies period was not an era of political or intellectual excitement. Ideas were not welcomed. Debate was not encouraged. Intellectuals were frowned upon or snubbed. It's time for a change. Now, a few years ago on this program, Troy, I asked Heather Henderson, Robert Menzies' daughter, for her thoughts on the academic left's criticism of her father. And what is an intellectual? If he wasn't an intellectual, he had a better intellect than most people I know. And... This expression, intellectual, mm. what exactly does it mean? Are you talking about academics? Mm. Because, yes, he did not always admire academics because they were academic and they did not always understand the practical consequences of what they were suggesting. And he was a practical person. Heather Henderson on the academic left's critique of her father, Robert Menzies. Yeah, look, I think I think that that is a fair criticism. You know, I got an endorsement for the book from Clive James, who pointed out that, you know, Robert Menzies' government gave a vast generation of Australians you know, essentially free university education with scholarships um, and dramatically expanded the number of universities and resources going to them. So he gave them their education and then they used the rest of their lives to denigrate him. So I think Menzies is, is un misunderstood by a lot of Australians. He didn't get everything right. Some things he got wrong. I mean, there's a range of things that he did that made this country better than it was. Well, Menzies once said of the ABC, quote, I've never been persona grata with the ABC, nor the ABC with me. <laughs> so it's great to have his biographer on the public broadcaster. Troy, great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks for having me, Tom. Troy Bramson, he's author of Robert Menzies, The Art of Politics. That's just out by Scribe. And we'll put a link on our website. You're an RN. Well, before Menzies came to power, there was Labor's Ben Chifley. 
He was our 16th Prime Minister, who came to power after John Curtin's death towards the end of World War II. Now, when you think of Ben Chifley, what comes to your mind? Do you think of his large-scale immigration agenda? Summarise with that wonderful question, populate or perish? (laughs) Or do you think of his ambitious program of social reforms and nation-building schemes, some say culminated in plans to nationalise the banks? Well, my next guest says... Chifley had a keen interest in post-war Asia. He understood better than most leaders at the time that the old colonial order was ending and that Australia had to come to terms with dramatic change in our region. Chifley, we're told, shed Britishness and embraced true internationalism. Now, Julie Suarez is author of J.B. Chifley, an ardent internationalist. That's just out with MUP. Hello, Julie. Welcome to RN. Thank you, Tom. Lovely to be here. Now, there's been a wide range of scholarly literature on Chifley. Now, you distinguish yourself by arguing that Chifley was an ardent internationalist. How so? Well, I'm actually quoting him from a speech uh, that he gave in 1947 in which he said that he had been an ardent advocate for all international organisations because he believed that through them we were engaging in a great human experiment which is designed to prevent the catastrophes that result from wars and financial and economic depressions. He was hugely influenced by the Great Depression and World War I and he saw the impact that the war had and also the impact that the Great Depression had and he didn't want those to be repeated. And I suppose growing up in Bathurst, uh, he was well aware that Australia was very dependent on world trade. And that's right, and that's something very, very interesting about him because he's somewhat different to your usual trade union leaders Mm. because he understood that Australia was dependent on world trade um, and uh, commodities such as wool and wheat, and that makes him very, very unusual in terms of the labour movement. And you spent quite a bit of your book on uh, Nauru, the India's leader at the time. What's the significance of the relationship between Chifley and Nauru? Well, they they basically had the same worldview. Both of them rejected that Cold War view of the world that the Americans and the British were pushing. Chifley basically, he agreed with Nauru that the primary object, say, of the British Commonwealth policy should be to create in countries exposed to communist influence social conditions and living standards under which it would no longer be likely that communism could flourish. So basically he's saying, and Nehru was saying also, both of them agreed when they met at the Prime Minister's Conference in London in 1949, they rejected that military intervention Instead, they said that social conditions and living standards had to improve. So your line then is that Chifley is taking issue with this sort of uh, Cold War mentality that's really starting to develop in certainly Washington and indeed London during this period. But didn't Chifley and indeed his external affairs minister, uh, Evert, Bert Evert, they clearly supported the creation and the early building of the UN, as you document in your yes, book. Yes, that's but, right. But at the same time, to be fair, Julie... Throughout the late 40s, didn't they seek to enjoin Washington in some kind of security pact for the Pacific? They did. They did, yes. Yes, but they, they weren't successful. But eventually, um, with Menzies, they did, and, and Everett... Uh, That's right. They, they did support it. The Labor did support the US alliance. So, I mean, couldn't you argue then that Chifley and Everett were, if you like, realists playing the great power politics at the very same time they espoused liberal internationalist principles? 
Uh, you could you could argue that, except I think uh, if you if you look at Chifley, you really really need to say that he was an internationalist, and he did support the United Nations. He thought that collective security through the United Nations was the way to go. Mm. How would you explain Chifley's continued support for? imperial defence, even as, like Curtin, his predecessor, he continued to insist on it working better for Australian interests in the Pacific. That's right. Well, it, it's quite curious because it, it, it does seem strange that Chifley, with his Irish ancestry, would embrace Britishness. But he was a great believer in democracy and Nazism had represented an enormous threat to, to democracies. And the British, as he said, had poured out blood and treasure in the fight for human liberty and freedom. Mm. And in doing that, uh, Great Britain was now on its knees financially. And unless something was done to restore economic stability, the British people would have a pyrrhic victory, which would mean that all their sufferings and sacrifices would have been in vain. Yes, and Neville Maney would argue that uh, Chifley was a creature of his culture and that he would have subscribe to this notion of Britishness in Australian social psychology, or, or I think they call it British race patriotism, Julie. That's right, um, yes. C- couldn't Chifley, uh, like his predecessors, and indeed certainly his immediate successor, Menzies, couldn't people like Chifley at the time see Australia as a bastion of Britishness searching for security in that unfamiliar Asia-Pacific world? Except there is a speech by Evatt in 1944 which has been misquoted by some historians who um, Everett said that more and more Australians were coming to the realisation that their political future as a people was cast in the Pacific. However, they found little sympathy for their point of view in London and Australia felt very much alone because the intelligence that they were providing to the British and to the Americans was not heeded. They felt very much alone because of that and they realised that they had a part to play in the Pacific. But Australia's intelligence, and there was a large amount of intelligence that we gained about our Asian Asias, yes, that it wasn't paid attention to by the British and, and the Americans. So when Chifley and Curtin described Australia as, quote, a bastion of British-speaking race, that, that was just language. In reality, they were actually more engaged with uh, the Asia-Pacific. But Chifley was, for sure, because he he saw, for example, India. He thought that India would lead the Asian nations. He also um, saw India later on as a huge democracy, and this he saw it in terms of uh, security in the region. It would provide a bulwark against uh, communism. He also saw the Asian nations as potential trading partners, and he said that this was a huge opportunity for Australia. And uh, you make uh, quite a lot about Chifley's rejection of uh, the then British Prime Minister Clement Attlee's request for the British government's Western Union policy. What's the significance right. of that episode? Well, I think it really confirms the fact that Chifley had a very different view of the world, say, to uh, the British Prime Minister Attlee, and he rejected. I mean, the, the Western Union was, was seen as a European bulwark against communism, whereas Chifley is seeing Australia as being part of the Pacific Indo-Pacific region, and he actually uses that term in an interview that he gave with Jayan Sani, an Indian journalist, so he has a very, very different view of Australia and its surrounds and its neighbours to Attlee. And he, he couldn't see the sense that 
Australia should join, be part of the Western Union. And yet at the same time, Chifley supported substantial Australian economic assistance to a battered post-war British economy. This was in the form of, I think it was Australian bulk purchases of British goods. So would that contradict your thesis? It doesn't really, because as I said previously, uh, Chifley was a great believer in democracy and Britain had stood up alone and fought the Nazis, who represented an enormous threat to democracies. Uh, And the result was that Great Britain was on its knees financially and economic stability needed to be restored to Britain. And that's that would be why he supported this. And on another note, you could argue certainly that under Chifley, Australia supported the Indonesians against the Dutch, although you could say that was only after we came to the realisation that those European empires weren't going to flood back into the region after World War II. Well, Chifley very early realised that the um, imperial world was ending and I've got a speech that he gave to, an off-the-record speech that he gave to journalists in October 1945, and this is just after he'd become Prime Minister, where he accused the Dutch of opportunistic realism. Mm. And what he said that the Dutch were doing, they, they thought that they could let the Allies mop up the Japanese and then the Dutch could move in and retake their colony. But Chifley opposed this. He understood that Australia needed to be friends with Indonesia and he understood that the imperial world was ending. My guest is Julie Suarez. She's the author of J.B. Chifley, an ardent internationalist. That's just out with MUP. Uh, Julie, um, Chifley's time in power obviously coincides with the Truman presidency in the United States. Harry Truman, of course, enunciated the Cold War doctrine of containment. I think you have a photo of Truman with Chifley on the cover of your book. Was Chifley also a Cold Warrior or was he a pacifist or is it more complicated? Well, he, was, he wasn't a pacifist. Uh, he was not a Cold War warrior. He, he rejected that Cold War view of the world that the Americans and the British were pushing. He thought that it was much better for Asian countries to improve their social conditions and their living standards. And if that occurred, then communism could not flourish. And, and you could argue that during this period, this is the 1940s, so the Curtin and Chifley era, that period essentially between the Menzies prime ministerships from 41 to 49, it was Bert Evatt who was more or less in charge of Australian foreign policy during this period. Um, does Chifley complement Evatt or does he distinguish his worldview from Evatt? Hey, there were certain differences. Chifley sent William McMahon Ball to Indonesia to gain intelligence about what was going on in Indonesia. He needed to um, look at what was going on in terms of um, Indonesian nationalism and to check out the Indonesian leaders. And this was in 1945, November 1945. Um, McMahon Ball, when he came back, Chifley made an arrangement to meet Ball and Chifley asked him, did he agree with Everett's statement that Australia should go to Indonesia and set themselves up as some sort of moderator. And Ball said no. And Chifley said, I'm glad that you said that because that's exactly his point of view, that we should not be moderators, 
because that could be very, very dangerous. And what was needed was the United Nations to step in. Mm. So in conclusion, your thesis is that far from being only comfortable dealing with domestic issues while Evett more or less ran foreign policy, your argument is that Chifley held a sophisticated, nuanced understanding of international relations that came to grips with the collapse of Britishness. That's your line. That's right, yes. And it's interesting too because um, Chifley was very interested in what was going on in India and between July 1948 and June 1949 he acted as Minister for External Affairs for all but one month and even as early as 1946, as the High Commissioner to India, Sir Ivan Mackay, recalled after seeing Chifley during his leave home, he said that he had an interview with Chifley and during the interview, old Chif just put his feet up on his desk, sucked his pipe and for two hours he told me what was going on in India. And this was 1946. Fascinating. Julie, thanks so much for being on the show today. And thank you very much, Tom, for inviting me. Julie Suarez is the author of J.B. Chifley, An Ardent Internationalist. It's just out from MUP, and we'll put a link on our website. Well, that's it for this week's show. Remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can listen via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.